have your Bibles this morning. I trust that you do. If you can open with me to 1 John 3. 1 John 3 is where we're going to be camping out today. And uh, welcome to week 6 of our Unshakable series where we are walking and unpacking a letter written by the Apostle John to all believers in order that believers, all of us, might have unshakable assurance of our faith in Christ. That we would know that we know that we know that we are saved, that we are His. And as we've already seen, um, the Apostle John loved comparisons. He loved making comparisons and contrasts. Let me just give you a few. In, first, in chapter 1, 6, and 7, walking in darkness, he compared that to walking in light. Chapter 1, 8, and 9, saying we have no sin versus confessing our sin. Chapter 2, 3 through 5, keeping God's commandments versus not keeping God's Commandments, chapter 2, 15, loving the world versus loving God. Chapter 2, 22, Antichrist versus Christ. Chapter 2, 23, denying Christ versus confessing Christ. Chapter 2, 28, confidence at Christ's coming versus shame at Christ's coming. Chapter 3, 4 through 7, those who practice sin versus those who practice righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 10, children of the devil versus children of God, as well as one who hates his brother versus one who loves his brother. So John is all about making this contrast. And what he's trying to get us to see is, listen, if your life um, kind of falls in this category, it's a sign that you are saved. And if your life falls in this category, take it as a sign that you are not. And last week we focused on the difference between being children of God versus being children of the devil or of the evil one. And this morning we're going to see that love in the family, love in the family, meaning brothers and sisters, reflects our love for the Father. And love that we have in the Father. So love for the family reflects love of the Father that we have in Him. Just think about that word, love. What, what is it? What is love? If you were to try to figure out what love is and you were to go to a quick Google search, you would come up with a, probably several million definitions and million answers concerning what love is. Yet if you were to read through just a few of these definitions, you would end up massively confused about this thing called love. Many definitions will leave us even asking what's love got to do with it. Some of you got that, others of you later on. But what we know is that love is an inexhaustible subject. Philosophers, musicians, poets, authors, playwrights have tried to define it and show it to us for centuries. Yet each generation seems to get further and further and further away from real love. We are further away in our generation than we've ever been. Think about this. In the first century, we have what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love never fails. In our 21st century, what is love? Whatever you want it to be. We have so lowered the standard and lowered the bar, yet at our core as Christians, we know that our life is to be centered on two commands. Love God and love others. We're to love God with all of our hearts. We're to love others. And I don't know about you, but not, not only do I struggle with loving God with all, I also struggle daily to love others. To Even when I feel closest to the Lord, even when things are going my way, I somehow find a way to fall short in my relationship with others. Whether it be my wife, whether it be my children, whether it be 
other brothers and sisters, or whether it be the lost world around me. And if I was a betting man, I would bet that, unfortunately, there's probably not one person in this room that doesn't struggle in their love for God and their love for others. As Kyle just prayed, we're not very good at it. We're not good at loving others the way that we should. And especially when, it, when you think about loving others and loving God consistently, selflessly, or sacrificially, how far we, we fall in that. Yet the picture is, I'm, I'm convinced that the church is filled today with people who, if you were to really drill down and ask them, they would, have, they would say this, I'm good with God. I'm good with God. Me and God are good. But if you say, what about, what about others? What about others? Well, ah, that's, that's nothing. And here's what John's saying. John's saying, you can't say you're good with God if you're not good with God's people. You can't say it. You can't say I'm good with God if you're not good with others. You can't say you love him if you're not loving others. In fact, there's people that say, well, I'm all in with God. Well, are you all in with the church? Are you all in with brothers and sisters in the church? Those things are telling as John is, is going to tell us, as we're going to see. I love the words of Dr. Larry Crabb. Let's listen to what he says. He says, imagine what could happen. Just imagine if God were to place within his people intangible nutrients that had the power to both prevent and reverse soul disease. And then he told us to share those nutrients with each other in a special kind of intimate relating called connection. Imagine what could happen if that were true, if we believed it, and if we devoted ourselves to understanding what those nutrients were and how we could give them away. Envision a community of people who intentionally mingle in settings where these nutrients are passed back and forth, where I pour into you the healing resources within me, and you pour into me what God has put into you. And let me just say this. It's not supposed to be just something we imagine. This is what God intended for his church to be. This is God's intention this isn't just wishful thinking here. God has filled us with his spirit and God desires to pour out what he does in us to others and vice versa. Get this for our good. For our good. Therefore, we can't walk in here and say, all I need is God. I don't need others. No, we need, all we need is God. Absolutely. But he made us where we need each other. We need each other. Like spiritual gifts, nutrients that we have through him nourish our souls, but they also are a blessing to other people, to other brothers and sisters. So in light of the love we've been given, in light of the love that we've been called to, let us turn to the word. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24. And then jump into this section and I'm going to say it from the beginning. Last, um, last service, I got so fired up that I skipped over a bunch of my notes and had no idea where I was. So I'm going to try to stay focused um, this service, but I can't make any promises whatsoever. So we'll see where the Lord takes us. But verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the, the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father. Lord, we come now again to your word. Speak to us, God, by your word, through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, illuminate truth, apply truth into our hearts and lives today. God, help us to hear you. May our ears be open. May our hearts be receptive. But Lord, help us also to obey you. God, remind us it's not enough just to say, oh, I heard from God today if we're not willing to obey and do what you've told us to do. So help us to hear, help us to respond rightly, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So we, we see that command, love one another twice in this section. And just think about the beautiful one another commands of Scripture. We're given so many one another commands. Just a few of them. Be kind to one another. Comfort one another. Meet with one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Care for one another. Help one another. Serve one another. And then, of course, love one another. Just think about those beautiful one another verses and then it's also striking to notice the one another verses that aren't included in Scripture. For example, we never read sacrifice one another or humble one another, scrutinize one another, embarrass one another, interrupt one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, judge one another, or one of our favorite, confess one another's sins. Instead of confessing our own. Listen, we are called to one another in a way that is good for each other. And the truth is, the kind of God that we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. Let me say that again. The kind of God that we really believe in is demonstrated and proven in how we treat one another. We will follow through horizontally with what we believe vertically. At, you know, I don't care what we say. It doesn't matter. If we have the whole Bible memorized, if we can say all the Ten Commandments, all the Beatitudes, all of those things, yet we don't love one another, we've missed it somewhere. 
We've missed it somewhere. If we fail to love one another in ways that minimize or ignore the love of Jesus, then the world has the right to judge and say they don't know him. The world has that right. Yet, imagine a world. So another imagination session. Imagine a world where people might be skeptical of what we believe, but they were envious in how well we love one another. Maybe they didn't quite understand what we believe, but they, they took notice in the fact that we loved each other. Imagine a world where unbelievers were eager to hire, to work for, to work with, to live next door to Christians because of how well we one anothered one another and how well we one anothered even them. That they were drawn to that. And once upon a time, brothers and sisters, that was so. Once upon a time, the one another culture of the church stood in complete opposition to the bite and devour culture of our world. So at one time, the church was love one another, one another, and the world was bite and devour. The problem is bite and devour has now come into the church. Where if we are not careful, we bite and we devour one another. And let me just say, brothers and sisters, it's not right. And it's not good for us to do that. Within that context, listen, Back then, pagans found the church to be irresistible because they were drawn to a love that the church had for one another. And when people in our context, outside the church, when they think of the church, they should think of a people who love each other selflessly, continuously, and sacrificially. That is what they should think. So from this section, we're going to just unpack three truths today related to the art of loving. And we'll see where God takes us. The very first truth, we're going to be there a long time. So just get ready. We're going to be there a long time. And then the last two, we'll kind of fly through. So truth number one, God enables us to love like he loves. God enables us to love like he loves. Look at verse 11 again. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is the command of God for us to love. Then what John does is he forces us to focus on the contrast between love and hate. Hate originates with the devil. Love originates with God. Now, many ministers often reflect the sentiment of, of Ellie Weissel, who said that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And there are times where that is true, but if we look at this section from the Apostle John, John is very clear, the opposite of love is not indifference, the opposite of love is hate. He makes it very clear. While, while love seeks the welfare of another, hate seeks the destruction of another. And then John shows this contrast by comparing the love of Christ with the hate of Cain. Think about Genesis 4. We know the story of Cain and Abel. Just think about that story. The story of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. It tells us more about Cain than about Abel, but Cain had grown to hate his brother. You know, I'm speaking in a sibling relationship where I was the angel. My sister was the black sheep. She envied me in every way. Maybe you know the situation. Maybe you've been there um, Thankfully, my sister never asked me to go for, the walk, for a walk in the woods um, after reading Genesis 4. But, so what we know is that Abel, everything about him was set apart from Cain. No matter what, 
Abel always seemed to come out on top. If there was conflict, then Abel the humble loved to get everybody together and make it all right. Did anyone need help? Abel the servant loved to come alongside and help in any way he could. Was there injury? Abel the compassionate and Dr. Abel loved to come and make it all right and kiss the boo-boos and make them all better. But what Cain found to be the most maddening was Abel the pious, the flaunting his tender conscience and his devotion to God for all to see. But there was a morning where Cain suffered a crushing blow. The Lord came and the Lord said, I require of both of you an offering, the first fruits of your labor. And Cain saw this as an opportunity. He says, I'm going to outgive my brother in the presence of of God. So he he took that which he had worked for in the, the field and he brought all of his produce and he says, I'm gonna give an out of this world offering. And I'm gonna blow God's socks off and I'm gonna make my brother look terrible. And let me just be very clear here. When you come before God and your intent is to make somebody else look bad, be careful. Be 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 careful. Because what's about to happen next is probably not gonna end up being good for, for you. So he brings this offering, and then Abel comes with this, this lowly little animal sacrifice. And what we know is that God looked at Cain's extravagant offering, and he rejected it. And Cain was stunned. Then to add injury to insult, the Lord accepted Abel's offering. Now, Cain has been humiliated by his brother yet again, yet this time, get this, it was before God. Humiliated by your brother before God. There is nothing in the Genesis text, there's nothing in Genesis 4 that tells us explicitly why Cain's offering was rejected and why Abel's was um, accepted. But what we do know is that when Cain complains to the Lord, the Lord says this, why are you downcast? Will you not be accepted if you do what is right? Meaning that Cain knew exactly what he was supposed to do. Cain knew exactly what was supposed to be given, and Cain knew exactly how it was supposed to be given. But instead of doing right, or instead of making it right, Cain was beside himself. He let hatred um, metastasize in his heart, and that hatred bled over into horror and more hatred. Abel had outshined him for the last time. So before the end of the day, before the day was over, over, Abel's lifeless body was laying in a remote field. And in this background of this story, John looks at those in the church, and the Apostle John says, don't be like that, don't kill your brother. To which we in the church go, huh? What? I mean, we look back, I mean, we're... Were they killing each other in the first century church? Is that what they were doing? Like, were they, were they like serial murderers in the church? And John was saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Some of you in this room, you're thinking about killing the person sitting beside you. Don't. Is that what was going on? And we would think, no, that's not what's going on. So what in the world is happening here? And then John tells us that the reason that Cain killed his brother is because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's deeds were evil. In the very next sentence, John says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So sometimes we use this to kind of comfort ourselves because we say, well, people out there are going to hate us because of our love for God and what we do in here. 
We say, well, they're like Cain and we're like Abel, so we get it. We're doing what's right. They're going to be against us. And there's a sense where that is true. How many of you have ever been in a conversation with an, with an unbeliever where you just shared what you believe or why you believe it, and all of a sudden they got so offensive as if you were accusing them of being Hitler? And it's like, I didn't accuse you of anything. All I shared with you is what God has shown me and what I believe. I didn't say anything about anything that you believe, and you immediately attacked me as if I attacked you. And that is the picture, the heart of Cain. The heart of Cain is, how dare you parade your righteousness in front of me? And Abel's saying, all I'm doing is obeying God. All I'm, God told me to do this. I'm obeying God exactly how he told me to. And yet you murder me because of my obedience. This is the world that we live in. Therefore, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard when people of this world, people like Cain, hate you. In, in, in ancient Athens, there was a story told of a man named um, Aristides the Just. He was unjustly um, accused, he was found unjustly and found guilty, and he was banished from Athens. When one of the members of the jury was asked why you voted against him, all he said was, I, I was just sick and tired of that just man. That, that's what he was found guilty of. He was found guilty of being just. And here's the thing, the hatred of this world for Christians is a phenomenon that will always be with us. Compared to what we believe as Christians, the world sees themselves as condemned. And because of that, they want to silence that which condemns them. They want to do away with that which condemns. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, where the, when the world around us hates us because of our love for truth and our love for the Lord. Get this. That's a comforting truth, I pray, also kind of... A, opens our eyes, and John is saying all that, and then, get this, John turns it. And John says, hey, hey, look, um, do you, you know what's up? Let me, let me tell you what's up. This isn't really about the world hating you. Let me tell you what I'm, I'm really writing. I'm writing because you're hating each other. And he turns it. He turns it completely. He says, you're hating each other. And we do this in many ways. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Yet we do that. We do that. Then look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk. But we do that. We talk about our love, but our love never, never has any expression to it. Think about this. Think about how we are quick to not love when God has called us to do so. And then look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this, By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He laid down his life for us. Many have noticed a beautiful relationship between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. Remember, John wrote them both. John 3.16 is a beautiful demonstration of love. God so loved the world. 1 John 3.16 is an explanation of love. Because he loves me, I love the world. John 3.16 says that God gave his son for us. 1 John 3.16 says we are to give ourselves for the needs of others. Let me say this, and please hear this. If, if you turn me off, turn me back on for just a second. 
Everything that we do in this life is supposed to be in relationship to the cross of Jesus Christ. All the time I hear people say, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know this. You don't know that. They're this and they're that. And they did this and all they focused on. And if we're not careful, all we begin to focus on is what that person, what you are doing to me and how that makes me feel. And you know what? When we're thinking that way, guess what we're not doing? We're not thinking about what Jesus has done for us. And we cut ourselves off from what Jesus has done for us because we're so focused on what everybody else in our minds is doing to us. And we have a choice to make. Either we choose to live our lives in circumstances and me against the world and my back's against the wall and if you come at me, you're going to get it or we live our lives um, in the shadow of the cross and what Christ has done for me and anything that you could do for me can't begin to ever take away what he has done for me. That's, that's our choice of how we get to live. Brothers and sisters, start, stop carrying around the pain of what someone else has done for you while minimizing what Christ has done for you. Stop doing it. And understand this. Listen, this is what our Savior has done for us. Think about the cross, our sin, our shame. He took it all upon himself so that we might have life in him. Human religion says, do this for God, do that for God, do that for God, and you might get God. Yet the gospel says, here's what God did for you that you can never do for yourself. You fall on that. And here's the reality. We can know love because Jesus has laid his life down for us. Therefore, our reference and love needs to not be what everybody else has done to us, but what Christ has done for us. That's not just our starting point. That's got to be where we find ourselves every day, in every battle, in every situation, what he has done for us, how much he has served us, how much he loves us. And what I know is true of all of us in this room is that we don't naturally, naturally our hearts aren't inclined to love sacrificially and to love selfish, uh, selflessly. Naturally, our hearts are inclined to get everything that we can get for us and ask the question in every situation, what does this mean for me? What, what am I going to get out of this? And that is our natural inclination. What am I going to get out of this? What does this mean for me? Because our world revolves around us. We are focused on ourselves. Yet 1 John 3, John is teaching us that, listen, our natural hearts are bad, yet God is greater than our hearts. And the fact God has taken out our natural hearts and replaced it with a supernatural heart, by which at one time we used to hate, we used to get even, we used to do everything we can to get back, but because of that supernatural heart, instead we love. Instead we encourage. Instead we bless. Instead of... Um, fighting back. That is what God has done for us. Instead of seeing someone who has hurt us, we feel compassion for them because they don't know who we know. And then we're able, because of that heart in us, to lay our lives down, to lay our pride down, to lay the things we want to do down for the sake of the needs of our brothers and sisters and the needs of the world around us. And I know you're thinking that's not natural. You're right. It's supernatural. It's what God does in us. It's what God wants to do through his people. During the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the, the British government began to run low on silver for coins. 
So Lord Cromwell sent out um, his men to, a, to all the local cathedrals. And he said, find any, see if you can find any precious metals there and bring it back. So after investigating, they reported back to him and they said, the only silver we can find in the cathedrals is the statues of the, sa- of the saints that are standing in the corners of the cathedrals. To which Cromwell replied, good, we'll melt down the saints and we'll put them into circulation. We'll melt down the saints and we'll put them into circulation. And that brief but direct order states very clearly the essence of our Christian lives. That we are melted down. Our pride is melted down. Our hate is melted down. All the things that oftentimes in the flesh define us is melted down. And we are put into circulation in this world for the sake of God's love for us and God's love for others. He puts us into circulation where we are loving and serving others. And I I praise God. I wish I had time. I don't. But I wish I had time to just tell you how God is doing that all over this faith family. How God is using people to serve each other. to, To serve just individual people who give themselves to serve children. To serve youth. To serve adults. To serve our community. To serve those who are down and out to serve those in nursing homes that are forgotten, to serve in different mission forums all over the world. I praise God for what God is doing in and through us to supernaturally use us to serve others, to love others to Jesus Christ. God is doing that here. God is doing that here. Yes, I know there's a lot lot more that God has to do and God wants to do for us. But don't you come at me saying, well, God's not doing anything. Maybe he's not doing anything in your life, but he is absolutely doing something in the life of this, his church. Absolutely, he's at work here. He's working here. Is he working in you? Let me just end this section. I told you it was going to be a long section. With the words of William Barclay, who says, if you want to see what, the, what this love is, look at Jesus Christ. In his death for us on the cross, it is fully displayed. In other words, the Christian life is the imitation of Christ. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2. And then listen to this. No one can look at Christ and then claim not to know what the Christian life is. Let me say that again. No one can look at Jesus and then say you don't know how you're supposed to live as a Christian. We look at Christ and that's exactly how we're called to live as believers. God emboldens us or or God enables us, excuse me, to love like he loves. He enables us to do that, to love one another well. And then secondly, God emboldens us to pray for his purposes. God emboldens us to pray for his purposes. Look at verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And in verse 20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. So here's the deal. As Kyle even prayed earlier, this whole loving one another thing, we don't get it right. We're not very good at it. We mess it up. We fall short of it. And if we're not careful, we're left with this little twinge of guilt. And let me tell you what guilt does. Guilt keeps us from praying. Guilt keeps us from seeking the Lord. 
Guilt keeps us from going to him over and over again. Yet John is talking about this guilt, and John says this to believers. He says, guys, God knows everything. God knows everything. It's right there in verse 20. He knows everything. And John uses that phrase, knows everything, one, another time in his writings. It's in John 20, the Gospel of John 21, when John is telling the story of Peter. After Peter denied Christ three times, he now stands before Jesus, and Jesus now asks him three times, Simon, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. But the third time Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know everything. What Peter is saying is this, Lord, you know me. You see all of my motives. You see all of my failures. You see every possibility that could ever happen in my life. You know. And praise God, God responded to Peter with grace. And praise God, God responds to us with grace. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. And our, our hearts, listen to this, our hearts will accuse us, sometimes correctly, and we need to get it right with God, but other times our hearts will accuse us incorrectly to keep us away from prayer, to keep us away from the body of Christ, to keep us away from God himself. And our hearts, listen, can only be comforted in those moments by the truth of the one that knows us intimately loves us infinitely. The one who knows us loves us. And he has called us into his presence through prayer. He's called us to pray. Look at verse 22 or 21 and 22. It says, we have confidence. So listen, if you understand God knows you and he loves you, then you have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, many hear that verse 22 and they say, well, what? We, we ask, whatever we ask from God, we receive. Well, I've asked God for a lot of things I haven't received, so God must be a liar. And that's what we think. And so we think that this is a blanket statement where because I'm a child of God, God's got, God has to give me whatever I want. And if God doesn't give me what I want, then something must be wrong with God because it can't be wrong with me. I mean, that's what we begin. You know, if I'm asking for this, it's right. How dare God not give me that? And is that what it's saying? And the answer, of course, is obviously no. What this verse is telling us, don't miss this. The key to prayer is for God's heart to overtake your heart. For God's will to overtake your will. In such a way that we begin to love what God loves. We desire what he desires. What we live to please him. We, his purposes now become our purposes that then transforms the way that we pray because now we are praying and asking God to do not what pleases us we're asking God to do what pleases him what we say a lot around here is remember this prayer is not about getting your will done in heaven prayer is about getting God's will done God's will done here on earth don't think of prayer as I'm going to twist God's arm I'm going to make him do what I want him to do that's not prayer Prayer is you putting yourself in a position where you can hear from God and your will is transformed and conformed to the very will of God. And in that moment, our prayers are answered because our will is in inward harmony with God's will. 
And this is evidence, as John says, because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing to him. Our actions prove that we love God and that his will has now become our will. And so we pray for the purposes of God. We pray for his will to be done. We pray for God's glory to be on display. This week, I've really been convicted in my prayer life and praying especially for other people to pray more and to pray in this way more. God, show us your glory. Whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like, God, show us your glory. And then, God, have mercy and grace. God, have mercy and grace on my life, on the situation. Show me your mercy and your grace over my life. Show me where I have failed, but show me, God, where you haven't. And how faithful you are. God is eager to answer those requests. He's eager to answer those requests. Prayers. God emboldens us to pray for his purposes. And then lastly, God empowers us to live by his spirit. God empowers us. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God in this room, you are right now in this moment being indwelt by the spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity, not an it, not a force. The third person of the Trinity dwells in you. In fact, look at verse 24. It says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And God lives in you. And by this, we know that he abides. He makes his home in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. We have the spirit of God living within us. Let, but instead, or for a moment, just let me kind of give you the bad news of how we often believe. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, many Christians might know the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is, they might know that the Holy Spirit's floating around in them somewhere, um, you know, somehow, some way. But many people relate to the Holy Spirit like they relate to their gallbladder. So think about this. We relate to the Holy Spirit like we relate to our gallbladder. We know our gallbladder is there somewhere. It's necessary to do some digestive kind of stuff for us. But most people don't have any real interaction with their gallbladder unless your gallbladder gets angry. And then all of a sudden your gallbladder gets angry. It's there. And that's how we feel. And that's how oftentimes we interact with the Holy Spirit. We don't know much about him until he gets angry. And then we feel bad about ourselves. And we go, ah, ah, do I really need that? You know, that's kind of how we do with the, with the gallbladder. Do I really need that? And of course we don't because they take it out. But do I really need that? And that's how we respond in that way with the Holy Spirit. Yet that is not the way we're supposed to interact with the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God magnifies the love of God into our lives and makes God's love personal to us. The Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God to us so that we can know truth. The Spirit of God does that in our lives. I love this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the best picture, which is kind of odd, the best picture of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God is given to us by Moses in Exodus 34. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes in front of him. As he does, he declares his name to him and his covenant love for him. I am the Lord, the Lord, God of mercy and, and grace, pouring my love to generations. A beautiful picture of God's covenant love. And what Lord Jones says is the Spirit of God does the same thing when he fills 
us. He puts Christ in us. He passes before us and he declares his name and declares his covenant love for us. Then it gets better because what Lord Jones does is he compares this experience to a father of a, with a five-year-old son who takes his son and swoops his son off of his feet and trolls him around. By, and then while saying, as he's trolling him around, you're my son and I love you. You're my son and I love you and get the point here. In that moment, the boy is no more the father's son, legally speaking, than he was before the father picked him up. Before the father picked him up, he was still his son. But something happened in, in that moment, caught up in his father's arms. He feels the father's love more passionately and his sonship more personally than he ever has. And the same thing, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit helps us to feel the Father's love more passionately and our sonship more personally every single day of our lives. That we are able to understand what He has done for us. We're able to understand we have the Spirit of God living in us. There should be something different in us. What should the Holy Spirit do? I don't know. How about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? How about those things being a part of our lives because we are surrendering ourselves to the Spirit of God in us. And it's through the Spirit of God in us that we're able really to love God and love others. How do I know that? Look at Romans 5.5 5 on the screen. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through who? the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're able to love God because the Holy Spirit pours His love into us. We're able to love others because the Holy Spirit pours His love into us. And here's how it works. We might think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm completely exhausted of my love for God right now, or I'm definitely completely exhausted in my love for others. I've given them about as much love as I could possibly give them. And here's the beauty of what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us more. He gives us more. He keeps pouring the love of God. He keeps pouring the love of God. So that when we're giving back that love to God and to um, that love to other people, there's always a supply of his love as we surrender ourselves to his spirit. There will never be a lack. There will never be a lack. So just think about this this morning. Brothers and sisters, God enables us to love as he loves. Are we loving brothers and sisters the way God has called us to? Are we walking with them? Are we loving them? Are we encouraging them? Are we living out these one another verses in ways that God has called us to? Then secondly, God emboldens us to pray for his purposes. What are we praying for? How are we praying? Here, here's, a sad, here's a sad thought, and it's only going to be a thought. What if I were to ask every one of you in this room today, I want every single person, you have to come up here and tell me the prayers that God answered in your life this week. How many of us would try to sneak out the back, or how many of us would find ourselves lying in church? Well, yeah, God did all this amazing stuff for me this week. I mean, my leg was shorter, and God made it long. I mean, we start coming up with all kind of crazy stuff, just trying to, trying to you know, lie in, in, in church, do all these different things. But here's the question. Has God answered our prayers this week? Or have we prayed this week? Have we even prayed? Have we even sought the Lord? Listen, if you feel guilty, if you feel like all these things are accusing your heart, you'll never seek him. But if you understand that you are covered in the blood of Christ and you can have confidence to come before God, it will give you 
boldness to come into his presence. We boldly come, we boldly pray, and then God empowers us to live by his spirit. Are we surrendering ourselves to the spirit of God? Are we giving ourselves to his will? Are we seeing the spirit of God um, alive in us, understanding there's nothing we can do naturally of our own, only what the spirit empowers us to do for the glory of God? Whatever God is telling us to do in this moment, I pray that we would say yes. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call the musicians forward. We're going to enter into this time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is telling you to do, that you would do it. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for another tough word. But we thank you, God, that you love us so much that you do not want to keep us where we are. You love us so much that you want to bring us to where you are closer and closer to your heart, closer and closer to your love. God, help us, Lord, in this moment to experience your love. I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they understand, God, what you have done for them through Jesus, but also, God, they would understand why they need Jesus because they are in their sin and they cannot save themselves and they are going to be guilty before you. And they would turn to you, Jesus. God, I pray for other brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, I pray for any that have animosity against other brothers and sisters in this room. God, may it, may it be dismissed today by your power. Lord, may it be right today, God. God, empower us to obey you, whatever that looks like, in ways that will bring God glory not to ourselves, but to you. God, give us the power, give us the ability to do, Lord, for you and for others what we cannot do on our own. Finish this time. Be our anchor. In Jesus' name, amen.